Hello and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd with me, Hannah Crosby. For the first six episodes of this podcast, we'll be delving into the world's most important fine wine regions. We'll be talking to our buyers and account managers as they share their insights and tips to help you enjoy and build your fine wine collection in 2022. For this week's episode, I'll be sitting down with buyer Adam Bruntlett and Head of Commercial Management Martin Rolf to explore the wonderful wines of Burgundy. It's a region that never fails to charm the dedicated wine lover. So grab a glass of something good as we discover what Burgundy we should be uncorking in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me in this tucked away little room in number three for this discussion on how we can enjoy and build our Burgundy collections in 2022. Adam, let's start by introducing you to our listeners. Can you tell us your story, how you came to be our Burgundy buyer at Berry Brothers and Rudd? So my journey through the world of wine began really when I sort of was on my year abroad at university. I studied French and German, so on my year abroad I went to France and Germany. Um, France in particular, when I was in Perpignan in the south of France, there was an event uh, to celebrate the harvest having been brought in. Um, and all of the local wine growers came into the centre of town and took their, sort of set up a trestle table and their, their wines, you paid a euro, walked up and down and took samples. One euro One for your euro. glass. One yeah. wow, okay. And you got to keep the glass as well. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> um, I'd like to think that I could taste the difference between different styles, but I think just the realisation that there were so many different people, small artisans making wine in this area was, mm. was quite a big thing. But I don't really come from any kind of wine family, as it were. My family rarely drank wine at all. And often it was sort of fairly cheap white wine with a with roast beef or something crazy like that. Um, <laughs> I didn't really have any knowledge of wine beyond knowing that I liked Chablis. I think that was about it when I left university. But I went to work for Majestic Wine, as a lot of people my age did in terms of starting in the wine trade. Then decided I had enough of retail and went to work for a small company called Richards Walford, who mm-hmm. were to me unknown, but I'd kind of inadvertently walked into probably the best Burgundy portfolio of <laughs> in the UK, wow. um, who were supplying Berry Brothers amongst other merchants in the UK. And I got a really great education there and just this great list of names that I didn't really understand. And then in 2012, uh, Berry Brothers bought Richards Walford. Um, and I moved down to London um, to work firstly as the buyer for, for FMV, which is the, the wholesale and, and uh, distribution part of Berries. And then when Jasper Morris retired in 2017, mm-hmm. I took on his role as the Burgundy buyer for Berry Brothers as well. So, And it's clear that Burgundy has been a long-term passion of yours. Is that a region that you've always been drawn to? Yeah, I think so. Um, um, I really like the detail and, and the tiny minutiae that you have in Burgundy, the patchwork of vineyards and, and all the strange little quirks that the vineyard name changes slightly as you go from one village to the next, even when it's on the border. And the fact that when you go and visit a supplier, the person who receives you is the person whose name's on the bottle or, or their son or daughter. And, uh, and they're the person that's out in the vineyard. They're labeling the orders. I went to visit Jean-Pierre Guillon in Von Romanet in, uh, in the autumn and um, with my assistant, who'd not been to Burgundy and uh, we pulled up and she didn't realise that my assistant didn't realise that that was Jean-Pierre Guillon himself because he was mopping the toilet. Oh my God, um, okay. When we got there. <laughs> so it's kind of, um, you know, they, they don't, you know, they've got dirty fingernails, you know, a lot of them, you know, there are some Porsches rolling around and, you know, there are some that own helicopters, that is true. But, oh. um, but a lot of them are still very anchored in the soil that they work. And as somebody who's from a rural area in Lincolnshire, as I am, it sort of resonates a bit to work with farmers and I quite like it. It's sort of very 
yeah, refreshing. Martin, on to you. Could you tell us a bit about how you came to be head of commercial management at Barry Brothers and Rush? So as with Adam, I um, found my way into the wine trade via Majestic Wine. Uh, I then went to work for another little independent in and around Hampshire mm-hmm. and found my way into Berries in 2011. So I was, I think I started on the 4th or 5th of January, which is just in time for probably one of the busiest, uh, well, certainly the busiest week of the year in terms of it being the on premier 2010 release, mm-hmm. so a bit of a baptism of fire. But I've been um, working as a private account manager, looking after or helping customers to build their sellers for about eight or nine years. And um, just over the past year or so, I've become the head of commercial management, which basically is just um, taking a look at allocations um, and very much from a product um, and customer view, uh, looking at what we're selling, how we're selling it, mm-hmm. um, and how we can structure our offering um, better for customers. Brilliant. And you've got a special love for Burgundy as well. What is it about the region that you absolutely adore? I think I first visited Burgundy in 2007, late 2007, mm-hmm. when we were selling the 2008 vintage. And I think it was just when um, my colleagues first go to Burgundy, it's a real sort of experience the first time. Mm-hmm. Just meeting the personalities, um, the fact that it's so small, the fact that the communes are so close together, you can really get a sense of how it pieces together and how how different one producer may be from another, which are literally maybe just two rows of vines apart. So mm. um, from a sort of a wine geek point of view, it's just the most the most interesting um, thing imaginable. And obviously you've got reds and whites mm-hmm. of, of a very, very high quality. So that sort of gives you that variety as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's probably the region that a lot of my colleagues get the most excited mm. about. So Adam, back to you. A lot of people talk about this bottle of wine that first gave them that eureka moment where a love of wine suddenly clicked for them. You mentioned really loving Chablis. Was the was that bottle of wine for you a bottle of Chablis or was it something a bit different? I think it wasn't probably. I think one of the first moments of, of tasting Burgundy and realising that it was quite special was before I'd even visited Burgundy itself, it would have been around 2010, 2011 when I was at Richards Walford. And on Fridays, we used to um, open a bottle of wine with um, with our lunch, one of the sort of perks of the job. This particular day was one of my colleagues who's the same age as me, it's his birthday. So he sort of had the choice of what we were going to take. And mm. um, we go, went out to the, the barn that was next door that served as a sample room. And he chose a, a 2008 Massy Chambertin from Domaine Mome, which no longer exists as a domain. It was bought and, and is now Domaine Tours, which we continue to work with um, to this day. But Mome was quite renowned for, for making very heavily reductive wines that were impenetrable when they were young. So this was quite a young wine from a vintage that was quite challenging 2008, quite high acidity. I love the vintage, but but it mm. wasn't um, as popular as 09 and 10 that followed it shortly after, which were a bit more rich and forward. And I remember thinking at first that it was just, I just didn't understand Pinot Noir from Burgundy because it was just the least approachable wine I think I'd encountered in, in my career to that point, having previously had sort of finished wines that were to drink at that time. Mm-hmm. I think what struck me was the way that the wine evolved and opened up and, and really um, sort of transformed over the course of the afternoon of having it in the glass next to me. Um, I think that's what really made me think, actually, this is a very sort of intellectual and complex region that makes wines that are very delicate and fine and probably the first time that that had sort of dawned on me. So. But it was a turning point more yeah. than anything as opposed to a Eureka moment. No, yeah. I get that. Martin, how about you? Was your Eureka moment wine a bottle of Burgundy or was it something else? 
I've been lucky enough to, to go to um, Burgundy most most years. So when I when I first joined, uh, I think uh, just a real sort of eye opener, really, of, of, of the quality and also just the differences between the between the communes. Uh, straight away, I was tasting things such as um, Freddie Munier's Claude Marichal um, versus um, some Chazelle Barto Chambols, which are obviously prettier and, and sort of purer style. Um, and I think. For, for me, it wasn't necessarily a eureka single bottle of wine. It was just a, a sort of a build of a build of interest. Mm. Um, certainly, on, I, mean, I, I at home sort of drink as much white as I do red, and um, I always tell customers that I think that on the white side, the sort of difference in sort of quality level is almost more pronounced in white than it is red. Mm-hmm. Moving up from village to premier cru to to the real sort of fat richness of of grand cru, so. Um, you know, I like to think that you know, ten, eleven years later, I I sort of know know what I'm doing in regards to Burgundy. <laughs> I hope um, so, yeah. But um, yeah, it wasn't a single single bottle of wine. But I've been I've been incredibly lucky um, over my wine career to date to drink an awful lot of great wines. And you know, early on, a lot of them were a lot less expensive than they are today, I guess. <laughs> um, but um, you know, there's always new up up and coming up and coming ones to focus on. I think that's a real sort of excitement for me finding the finding the next really good producers. Yeah. Well, you say that you've been visiting the region for over 10 years, Adam. I'm sure it's the same for you, if not more. How have you noticed the region changing? Uh, for me, I think that, I mean, certainly in terms of just where we're, where we're going as, as wine merchants, we are um, visiting a broader range of areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think early on, perhaps we weren't necessarily going to Sontenay every year. We weren't going to San Roman <laughs> every year. Um, you know, we, I don't think I went to Chablis for the first two or three years. Um, I think that as Burgundy has developed over the past five years, um, there really has been the need to venture further away from the communes that were perhaps the go-to places. So the real established places such as Jevry Chambertin, such as Mouis Saint-Georges, Chambon Mazzini, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, they are regions whereby the wines have become a lot more popular. Um, it's very, very hard to, to, to discover new talent in those areas. And collectors are getting priced out of the areas. Is that very right? much so. Yeah. And I think... I think you know, to some extent, everyone is looking for value, regardless of how much you know you you can or choose to spend on a bottle of wine. And and so, if if we're talking about an area such as Sontenay, um, it's uh, a region which is perhaps lesser known, but equally the wines offer incredible value. And I think Adam uncovered a great grower called David Moreau, perhaps mm. eight nine years ago, perhaps. And you know, to my mind, he's you know one of the one of the best young winemakers in the village. He's probably in his early 40s, if that, um, and is making wines that you know, are perhaps £150 a case, um, mm. which they punch above their weight. I think that's the really sort of exciting exciting bit. So, yeah, how, how it's developed is a, is a broadening of, of new producers coming online, new exciting winemakers, and um, us being able to look and find quality in other mm. less established communes. Yeah. And you've kind of mentioned those iconic areas. Um, Adam, when we think of fine Burgundy, usually we think of like Côte de Beaune and Côte de Nuit. But what is it that makes these appellations so special and highly regarded in the first place? I think it is essentially a question of the terroir, the famous um, mm. sort of soil, and that being at that perfect mid-slope location where the the soil composition and, and exposition to the sun are, are in perfect harmony and, and perfect for growing grapes and getting them to the right level of ripeness every year. I think despite that, there is a certain kind of element of of this being a, a fairly 
um, self-perpetuating cycle where mm-hmm. um, because those wines carry that premium and are worth that much money at the end of the day, it doesn't um, encourage or didn't in the past encourage growers to work as hard perhaps with their vines further down on the slope in the Bourgogne levels or people who were in less fancied villages like like Santenay or, or Marange um, where in the past when they were growing grapes, the, the price they could get for them wasn't particularly high. They were often sold and blended into big negociations, cuvées of Bourgogne or something in the past. <laughs> so I think we've had a real increase in quality perpetuated by the, the higher prices that Burgundy now carries. It, it's enabled growers to work a bit harder on those, on those vines in, in less sought after areas and, and maybe make better wines because they can get the money mm-hmm. for them. It's profitable for them now. I think. As a result, the overall quality of Burgundy that you can buy has never been as high as, as it is now. I think that's what's so exciting. It means that you can get really great wines from areas such as Marsonnet, Marange, Santenay, um, Saruman, the Cochellanes for white, and you know, the Maconnet and Chablis are also really um, exciting. So I think while it's frustrating for, for customers, perhaps, that the prices of Burgundy have increased, it has actually been a benefit because it's enabled growers in, in less regarded areas to, to sell their wines at a fair price and, and make a good living making yeah. high-quality wines rather than just making wines to, to a certain price point. Yeah. Well, we've just seen um, the most recent uh, Burgundy Emprimer campaign. How was your most recent visit? So my most recent vintage was just before our offer in the autumn of 2021 to taste the 2020 vintage. Um, so I went out in uh, the middle of October and stayed until almost the end of November. So I did five painful weeks wow. tasting Burgundy from wow. Barrel, um, <laughs> which is not not quite as fun as everybody thinks it is. It's quite tiring, but um, but it's an also, also a huge privilege, so I shouldn't complain too much. It was It was great because it's the first sort of big visit that I've done since COVID. I'd managed to sort of slip in for shorter periods and, and the previous year we'd only managed two or three weeks in, in the autumn. So um, it was good to see everybody again. And the great news was the wines were, were excellent. It was a joy to taste with people again and, mm. and um, enjoy such great wines. Yeah. It's always a recurring theme with buyers on the podcast. I think a couple of people have like mentioned that, yes, we get to taste a lot of wines, <laughs> but it's not fun. It's not a holiday. So when this podcast goes out, there will still be Burgundy on Prima that people can buy. Martin, what can people expect from the 2020 vintage? I think it's uh, one of those good vintages where you can expect qualities from both red and white, mm-hmm. which isn't always the case. Um, on the white side, I think it's a, it's a very good vintage indeed. It's, um, it shares a lot of the characteristics of 2017, for example. So you've got, you've got pretty high acidity, therefore you've got lovely, lovely freshness and real sort of tension to the wines. Mm. On the red side, you just have a, a lovely balance between the fruit and and the freshness and the acidity. Mm. So I think there's quality we found everywhere and, and just echoing what Adam mentioned a moment ago about quality across the board. I mean, I tend to buy uh, a decent spread of Bourgogne Blanc and Bourgogne Rouge pretty much every year now. Mm. You know, they are very affordable wines um, that will have the touch of class from from the top winemakers. And I think um, the great thing about a vintage such as 2020 is the quality of both red and white, but also the quality across the board. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to be looking at Grand Cru and Premier crew, the quality at village level and even beneath that is um, is very, very high. Brilliant. One to get your hands on for sure. Um, Adam, we've kind of touched on change in terms of quality level in Burgundy, but in the region, controlling the climate is a constant battle. Climate change is an undeniable issue from spring frosts to the effects of climate change. What impact has this had on the region over the years? Yeah, I think it's probably the single biggest challenge that, um, that the growers are facing in Burgundy. We've obviously come off the back of a succession of quite warm vintages, quite hot vintages and dry vintages. 
So everybody, when we were talking to them, had, had been looking at ways to mitigate that, principally in the vineyard in terms of how they manage their vines and the canopy to, to shade the grapes and to ensure that the um, vines maximise the amount of water they can get um, mm-hmm. from from the soil. Um, but then we have 2021 where we have quite a cold, wet vintage. So it's very hard for, for anyone to put any hard and fast rules in. I think the most important thing is that we do have a really diligent set of of winemakers. Well, actually, I wouldn't say winemakers, I'd say growers, because it's about the work in the vineyard. And that's where I think um, the greatest impact can be had. And it's probably something that I've noticed as one of the biggest changes since I started going to Burgundy in terms of the number of growers who are converting to organic viticulture or biodynamics, or just having a very sustainable view on things. Mm. Um, the majority of the estates we work with are still family owned and they're very conscious that they live amongst the vines and they've got to transmit these vines onto their family and they want to hand them over in a better state than they received them. Um, mm. Obviously, we've had periods in in the last century where there was an excessive use of, of chemical treatments in the vineyards. And um, I think the generation who came in in sort of the 80s, the Dominique Lafont, the, the Etienne Grivos, Christophe Rumier, that sort of generation took a really strong step away from their parents' overuse of fertiliser and chemicals and, and pesticides um, and herbicides and started this movement towards much more sustainable work. And I think their children have really um, sort of improved upon that and, and are going even further. Mm. I think everybody we speak to, um, they're looking at it from A to Z in terms of their packaging, the buildings and the winery, as well as the the work in the vineyards. Um there's still going to be problems like frost and they are still looking at different ways to, to manage that um, in terms of using windmills or um, electric wires through the vineyard or aspersion systems with water. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very hard to kind of to counteract things and natural disasters like frost in, in spring. But um, everybody I speak to is reflecting about these these issues. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's great that they're so innovative and, and creative in, in trying to address problems. And still producing amazing wine. Yeah. Yeah, and thankfully, I think we've seen in two, we saw in two thousand sixteen maybe that um, the quality of wine that can be made despite catastrophic frost, and we'll see in twenty twenty one probably something mm-hmm. similar with the whites, particularly. That I think if that vintage had been made fifteen twenty years earlier, it would have been dreadful. Yeah, um, and a lot of the growers told us that they yeah. said, you know, we've I think we're we've improved a lot in terms of how we're making them, and I think we saw it in twenty twenty. Compared to 2003, I think 2003 is not a bad vintage, but I think they were quite similar in terms of the conditions during the year. Yet the vintage, the wines that were produced, are incomparable. Yeah. That's the amazing thing for me in terms of the, the last three vintages, which are basically all hot years. But uh, just what's going on in the vineyard and just you know the understanding of the winemakers means that you have wines that still have have lovely, lovely ripe fruit, and depth of flavour, but there's there's freshness. And perhaps 2003 and 2009 vintages where you had high concentration, but not quite as much freshness. Now, Martin, Burgundy is a cornerstone in any wine collector's cellar, but many are intimidated by the complexity of the region. What advice would you give to those who want to get started with collecting Burgundy? The first thing to do is um, is to speak to your account manager. Um, <laughs> nice. Who <laughs> invariably is um, is going to be just as passionate about Burgundy wines as Adam as myself. You know, the the whole team at, at Berry Buzzard Rudd, We you know, we absolutely love 
we love burgundy wines we're lucky enough to go we're lucky enough to taste we have our favorites we're all trying to uncover uncover new areas uh, or new new uh, new producers etc so as i said earlier i've been in Berries for 11 years now and in that time i think that we've seen demand for the burgundy from our customers and customers globally go up uh, significantly yes it can be it can be complicated but it's also it's also a lot of fun um mm. and i think the real joy of of it is exploring it and so you know we can help guide you towards um some of the communes that appellations that, that we all know and love chevichon botan etc but mm-hmm. also to some of the some of the newer areas that i mentioned earlier it's such a big diverse area with with quality at all sort of all sorts of different price points one bit of advice is you know generally speaking on premier is is generally the best the best time to buy these wines um they are all as we know sadly available in in certainly finite volumes so yeah the the time to access a, a good spread from a good spread of villages is is in early january so um it's an incredibly busy time for us and we encourage all of our customers to contact us to have these conversations in december and in early january so we can make sure that we get the best selections possible but you know we do try and um buy as widely as we can so we have a good selection available throughout the year that's brilliant advice and adam which burgundy producers are you finding most exciting at the moment uh, firstly, I think the great thing about about Burgundy at the moment is probably that the average level of quality across the board is so high um, and has never been as high. And, and it's a discussion I sort of have with quite a lot of growers, and they all tend to to agree with me that what's great about Burgundy now is you can be be pretty confident when you're buying that the wines are going to be good. Also. What's great about Burgundy is there's always a, a constant sort of dynamic and that's shifting and new domains coming through and changes of generation, which always often engender a change of style or uh, quality level. I think a couple of highlights from 2020 in terms of people who have made a bit of a step change or are becoming more well-known and recognised. Domaine Guillon, as I mentioned in Bon Romanet, I think they were making great wines before and now they're making really outstanding wines that are probably mm. on the very top tier of, of Burgundy. The level of detail that they go to in terms of vineyard work, Jean-Pierre Guillon, a man who's very hard to, to get hold of for, for visits. He's constantly in his vineyards and he's doing a lot of, he's not hedging his vineyards anymore, he's folding them over. In the winery, he sort of cuts out the central trunk of, of each bunch and has a team of 25 people on three different sorting tables. It's this just minutiae of, of detail that he goes to to make the absolutely most silky, pure wines that imaginable. And, and they're outstanding and they've really... Um, gained a lot of, of press attention in, in the last year or two. I think in Chablis, another name that's really good is Domain E&D Vaucheray, Edouard and Eleni Vaucheray. They're a, a young couple that, again, we've worked with for quite a while. I think 13 was the first vintage we bought. The Vaucheray family is quite big in Chablis, um, making good but not sort of exciting wines generally. And Edouard decided he wanted to do something different. They made, the family domain make quite sort of classic, fairly straight down the line he and his partner met in new zealand they've traveled a bit they like surfing they're quite sort of alternative they worked a bit with vincent dovisa and they're good friends with him borrow a lot of equipment and stuff from him and they're making wines in a similar way to to dovisa and just working with village wine pretty much apart from a tiny parcel of premier for now but they're making outstanding wines from village vineyards the good news as well is from 2023 they will have a huge amount relatively of premier and grand cru vineyards that they're inheriting from the family so that's an exciting one i'm really keen to see what they can do with, with top top 
top vineyards because the great results that they've got from fairly humble vineyards is really impressive. So um, that's one to watch as well. I think they've already got quite a bit of a following from from what I can see of the sales of 2019 and 20, which have, uh, <laughs> have gone very well. Brilliant. Martin, do you have any of your favourite producers that you could recommend to listeners? Uh, I certainly do. I mean, uh, just, just another one um, sort of relatively new to berries is Rebel Um I think I had a mention. They uh, grow a very, very much on the upgrade. Incredible wines over the past couple of vintages and um, I think that's a good example of a producer whereby perhaps some customers are seeking some producers perhaps where the wines are a little bit harder to find harder to get hold of these days um away from rebel so maxime rion who's just taken over from his father patrice are absolutely fantastic favorite Merce producer is uh, antoine jobard he's um been making wines for a long time now a real favorite of um of our staff and our customers and i think he's finally getting the recognition from the critics that he really really deserves the same could be said of david Qua. i've always viewed him and david Qua and benjamin larue very much as two of the really exciting young winemakers based in Bone and uh, have a vast array of wines between them, particularly David Croix. Is, um, has really become noticed by the critics over the past few years. Michel Bouzereau is another one I'd, uh, I'd probably highlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes a fantastic range of Polinis and Mersos. Becoming a little bit harder to find now, but definitely worth seeking out. Adam might have a view about the quality at Domaine de la Bougere, but to my mind, just steadily increased over the past four or five years and is now at a consistently very, very high level, which is, which is great news because you know, the wines are you know, generally generally reasonably widely available um mm-hmm. so it's a real uh, a real place to always look i think and among your private clients in the wider fine wine market what trends are you seeing when it comes to buying burgundy well, i think the first one is just an interest in burgundy say so certainly maybe five or six years ago um compared to five or six years ago we we simply see a bigger proportion of our customers wanting to add burgundy to their cellars that feeling of of the wine buying public becoming a little bit braver not being quite as quite as confused by by burgundy as a perhaps warmer vintages we've seen a, over the recent past has perhaps introduced a newer group of customers to burgundy um if we're looking at very very cool vintages which i actually actually love i love sort of midweight pretty very very precise Pinot Noir, but the mm. last um, sort of three or four vintages have been warmer years, which which gives you those um, those warmer, riper fruit flavours. And Adam, for aspiring collectors listening, what vintages of red and white Burgundy should um, they be on the lookout for? Personally, and, and I'm sure Martin and, and the rest of the, the team have probably heard me uh, banging on for ages about it. I'm a huge fan of 2017. The genie might be slightly out of the bottle now because quite a few critics uh, share my enthusiasm for it. I think from the very start, the, two, the, the 2017 whites were really sought after. It was a vintage where, as Martin mentioned earlier, sometimes you have a white vintage or a red vintage. And I think 17 was painted by by the critics initially as a white vintage, but actually I think I always had a, a real love for the, the reds. It helps personally that it's the birth year of my eldest daughter, so I bought quite a bit. Um, but I think it's just such a beautifully balanced vintage, which has nothing in excess. There's nice, fresh acidity, tannins, which are nicely ripe, but but bare enough to, to kind of give a bit of support. There's a good medium weight of fruit. And I think just really charming wines that, are, that, that drank really well when they were young, and they still are relatively young. And I think they're probably going to drink really well throughout their lives. So it's one, if you're starting Burgundy, it's a good vintage to go for because red and white, I think the wines will not really have a period where they're unapproachable and you feel like you've made a mistake by opening them because I think that can often be a bit of a pitfall with 
Pinot Noir that sometimes it drinks well on the fruit in the first few years and then there's maybe a period where it, it sort of closes up a bit and goes quite hard and firm and you need to wait for the wine to come out the other side and, and often if you open it during that period you can feel slightly underwhelmed and, and disappointed. I think 17 is going to be a vintage that will drink well throughout the kind of depending on the quality level potentially 20 years of, of its life possibly more for the, the top wines so i think if you're starting out in burgundy it's a really good vintage to go for it there's also in reds and whites a decent sized crop so there, there should be still a bit of wine around on the the market i know we've still got a bit of 2017 available and because it was underrated initially i think they're still quite affordable and we've seen quite big leaps in price in recent years because of the successive small crops of, of 19, 20, and then 21 again if will be small next year. The price relative to, to 2020s is really attractive. So I think I'd be recommending people to go for 20 for, for buying now if they want something that they can drink now and over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And 17 is the one for me. And Martin, are there any vintages that you'd recommend? I certainly agree with Adam on, um, on 2017. Also a big fan of 16 which isn't dissimilar, I guess, in terms of that real sort of focus on purity, lovely acidity, really just beautiful balance to the wines. I think, I think all vintages have a place. You know, 15 is, is, I guess, destined to be, to be viewed as, as one, of the, one of the great years. A hotter vintage, the wines are certainly fuller and richer. You know, there's certainly a lot, of, a lot of enjoyment to be had, had from those years, but I'd certainly echo Adam's thoughts on 2017. And, and I guess my hope looking ahead to next year's 2021s is that being a cooler vintage, albeit a much smaller volume um, vintage, unfortunately, but, but being a cooler vintage, perhaps that might be along the same sort of lines as, as the 2017s with that lovely freshness. Looking ahead to what we should be drinking in 2022, which vintages should listeners be withdrawing to drink this year? In terms of whites, I would probably be looking at vintages such as 13 and 16. I think they're ready to go now. Otherwise, 15 and 18, you know, while they're still quite young vintages, and actually they're vintages which for white wines probably were over, overshadowed quite a bit by the reds. I think the whites have turned out really well and have gained in freshness during the Elvage and, and since bottling. So, but they're still quite approachable because they've got a good generosity of fruit. I'd be sort of looking at 13, 15, 16, 18 for whites. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how many people have whites much older than that, but, um, but, but if they do, then I think. 14 I would be holding on to, wouldn't touch the 14s there. They're really still quite austere, but anything sort of pre-14, I think people can, can look at now. Um, there shouldn't be too much um, need to wait for those. In reds, 17 is, is beautiful now and will be throughout its life. Otherwise, I'd probably be looking at sort of 2011 and then 08, 07, 06. That's quite a, a nice nice run of vintages that should be nicely mature now and good to, mm. to approach now. I think quite a few of the recent vintages probably should be be waited for uh, we should sort of give them a bit more time 15 16 uh i think have got a bit more structure than than is really what we want at the moment so i'd probably be looking at those 12 potentially could be could be one to look at as well although it's a it's another strong vintage that that i think would be at its best in a couple of years time and martin would you echo what adam said or are there any other vintages you think we should be trying 2014s are just sort of beginning to beginning to open up in some cases i think it's a vintage which um very much is in the shadow of 15 um which sort of got all the plaudits uh for me 14 is a is a really strong vintage and um Perhaps you know some of the some of the village level wines are just beginning to show their best now. The Premier Cru is within maybe a few years after that. But it's it's certainly a vintage which perhaps isn't quite as um, as firmly on the radar uh, for some buyers as, as it might be. And I think you, know, you can uh, you can still find the wines to some extent on the market. 
Um, older wines, you know, I've been lucky enough to try some 2008s recently, which are drinking absolutely beautifully. And I think you know a, a lot of a lot of wines from um, from eight right the way through to eleven and twelve are going to be are going to be absolutely fantastic now. Which I didn't buy anywhere near enough tens um, when I had the, when I had the opportunity. Um, <laughs> but um, every time I try a ten now, I'm just I'm taken aback by by the combination of of dark fruit, the real concentration of the dark fruit and and the fresh acidity alongside. So uh, for customers who have tens in their cellars, I think for me it's one of the one of the great, if not the if not the greatest um Burgundy vintage around. So um most of those wines will have a, a long time ahead of them, but they're certainly beginning to beginning to show absolutely beautifully. So um definitely have a think about uh, trying some of those. Wonderful. Yeah, just echo, echo your enthusiasm for the 14 reds. I I really enjoyed them. Sadly the restaurant this in, in Bone are painfully young. So we don't see many of them on, on there, but if I do, I snap one up pretty quickly. They're great. They've got this really nice crunchy freshness that I think works well with food. I think on their own, maybe they can they can be a little angular potentially, but I think with food, the 14s drink really well at the moment. So um, yeah, I definitely, um, I'd agree with that for the reds. I think the whites, as I say, hold back on the white 14s, but, but red 14s I might be approaching, especially at kind of regional and village level. They're, they're good to go. And Adam, if collectors wanted to build a collection of Burgundy that they can enjoy over decades, what kind of ageing potential can they expect from both red and white? It sort of depends on how you like your wines, really, um, mm -hmm. as ever. And, and personally, I quite like the freshness and purity and, and energy of a fairly young Pinot Noir. Mature Pinot Noir isn't necessarily to everybody's taste because it develops a quite sort of herbaceous tertiary character of mushroom and truffle. But if people do want to, to keep wines for longer, then a good vintage of Pinot Noir and, and a top wine from Grand Cru site, you could be looking at 45, 50 years or, or longer. Wow. Definitely, there's been a move generally across Burgundy to make wines which are more approachable in youth. So I think mm -hmm. we haven't really had the time to be able to see how really modern Burgundy will age. But looking at the wines analytically on a point from the point of view of structure in terms of acidity and tannin, there isn't any reason really why why modern Burgundy shouldn't shouldn't age to the same level as as great wines that I've tasted in the past. You know, 76s are wonderful at the moment. It was quite a it was a vintage a bit like 2003 and potentially 2020 where um, it was quite hot and there was quite a bit of, sort of blocked maturity. So they've taken a long mm. time to come around because they're very tannic wines. And we've just shipped a parcel of, of mature wines from Camille Giroux from from the late 70s and 80s and they 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 made wines um, with, with the express aim of of being age worthy they're, they're drinking really well still um i'm still always on the lookout for, for more mature parcels i think the whites obviously there was a period sort of from the mid 90s to probably up towards 2010 where there was quite a bit of variability in how the wines would age problems with premature oxidation i think to a, a significant extent we're past that problem now and, and growers have taken lots of different methods to to um to minimize the potential of that happening whether that's closures or their winemaking techniques but we've been quite optimistic on the 2020 whites we think it's a great vintage i think 14 17 and 20 should should age well the higher end it's sort of uh, as i say it all depends on people's taste as well and whether you like the energy and purity and, and fruit primary character of, of young wines or if, if you prefer a little bit more complexity and, and some more savory characters but there's definitely surprising potential for in what are relatively delicate and elegant wines in comparison to structured wines like bordeaux or wines from tuscany yeah for sure and from your own sellers martin which bottle are you looking forward to opening in 2022 i have been buying Clé de Maréchal from Frederick Mounier mm -hmm. um, over the past 
decade, um, almost every year. I might have to stop seeing. So almost at the point in which I can't, I can't afford to buy it anymore. <laughs> the prices, as the price has moved along. But um, I've got some O4s and some O5s, um, which um, are particularly, particularly exciting for me. Uh, it's a fantastic vineyard, and he's a, he's you know one of the one of the great Burgundian winemakers. So that's probably that's probably top of my to do list uh, in terms of enjoying. But um, so I'm, I'm a I'm a big advocate of the quality of, um, of Bourgogne Rouge and Bourgogne Blanc. And another sort of topic for me is, um, is Dominic Lafon, um, mm-hmm. who is, um, you know, he has his own domain, but he's obviously also the winemaker at, at the family domain, Comte Lafon. His, um, his Bourgogne Blanc is, um, is, is almost like a little mini Merceau in terms of how I, how I describe it to my customers. It's something I buy a few cases of every year. And I think, I think I've got it as far back. I drank the 16 last year. So I have the 2017 to enjoy this summer, which will be, um, which will be an absolute treat. Brilliant. And how about you, Adam? What are you looking forward to on Corking in 2022? Um, I think it's whether I will uncork it or not, I suppose. I, I, every time I get out of the cellar, um, and I'm lucky enough to have a very small former coal cellar at my house, so it's an actual mm-hmm. cellar. And, and I'm always stroking this magnum that I've got of Arno Arndt's 2008 <laughs> <Pugny> Morris <laughs> Reffer. That's which, a great image. <laughs> um, which I bought at a price that is, is significantly below its value. Um, I'm kind of waiting for an, an occasion to, to, to open it, really. Last time I went to see Arno, um, I very subtly mentioned that I had a magnum of this and, oh, I wonder how it's drinking. And um, unsurprisingly, thankfully, at the end of the tasting, he opened the bottle for me to see how it was tasting. And it's still very young. So um, we will see whether it gets opened or not. My other half actually has a, has a, a, a bottle of his 2005 Merceau Group Door that I keep trying to angle for her to open. Um, <laughs> she, she said she's saving it for her 40th, so we might have to wait a couple more years, sadly. But um, but yeah, those those two are, are definitely calling to me. Outside of that, I think I'm probably looking forward to opening. I've got a couple of 2010s reds that I've sort of tried to figure out whether they're ready or not. I keep avoiding, I put them at the bottom of a big pile. So hopefully, um, hopefully I'll probably avoid opening them because I think it might be a bit too young. Yeah. It's more about what I'm not going to drink than what I'm going to drink. Just to wrap up, Adam, if there's one thing we should take away from today's conversation, whether that be a relation to dig into, a vintage to try or a producer to watch, what would that be? I think it would probably be that you can buy Burgundy with more confidence than ever before. And I think because the quality level is so good across the, the range. And I think Martin mentioned it earlier, I think 2019 and 2020 were the, the two years where we really saw customers buy into what we've been trying to to sort of say for quite a few years, which is that, that you really should look outside of the established villages and names. The, the message to take out of it is that the quality level in Burgundy has never been as good on average. There just are so many great people making great wines outside of the established villages. Give them a try. Um, have a look. You won't be disappointed. Wonderful. And how about you, Martin? What's the one thing that listeners should take away from this conversation? Hopefully just a, a thirst to, to explore the wines of the region. As Adam said, the, the quality across the region is, is incredibly high now. That sort of combination of, of, um, of technology and understanding of vines, you know, winemaking, uh, means that uh, the quality is, is consistently high, even in, even in hotter vintages, perhaps, whereby in the past, vineyards may have struggled to maintain a freshness and acidity that's uh, they're doing an incredible job um, in recent times of getting the of maintaining the freshness alongside the ripeness. So, with that in mind, an area to, to really just want to, to just to try to explore, and that's that's exactly what we try and try and encourage our customers to do by by trying new wines from from new new villages and, and new producers. Amazing. Well, all that remains for me to say is, Adam Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and discussing the amazing, wonderful region of Burgundy. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to hear more episodes or you're keen to learn more about fine wine from our experts, visit bbr.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you've been enjoying the podcast in general, do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We hope to welcome you back soon. But until then, thank you again for listening to this episode of Drinking Well.